philosophy first took me away from God. And then after very many years after that, it brought me back to God. And then eventually it brought me into the Catholic faith. So I've spent a lot of time, really probably about the past 10 years, thinking very, very hard, which is, that's, that's all philosophy is. Philosophy is just thinking hard about things. That's, 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 that's all it is, right? If you think hard about something, you're doing philosophy. And it's best done slow. Those are the two things I can, I can offer you, right? <laughs> that's, that's a talk. <laughs> um, so I've, I've spent about 10, 10 years thinking very hard about the, the nature of God, uh, first from an atheistic perspective and then from a theistic perspective and then from a Catholic perspective. I couldn't think of a more important question. Uh, in fact, when I was very young, I always had a lot of different philo weird philosophical questions. Some, some philosophical questions are very weird, like, am I dreaming right now or is there a world beyond my head and stuff like that? I always had these, these questions, but the question of God always seemed especially important to me. And at first, I didn't think it was a question that could have an answer. Uh, then I thought it was a question that did have an answer, and it was answered in the negative. And then I thought, again, maybe it was a question that didn't have an answer. And then I thought it was a question that did have an answer in the positive. <laughs> so I've kind of been all over the spectrum with that. Um, so here's, how I wanna, here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about what philosophy is and why it matters. Those are two really good philosophical questions, right? What is something? And does it matter? And if so, in what way does it matter? Uh, we're in Tulsa. Uh, you guys get tornadoes, right? Sometimes. Sometimes. What is, <laughs> what is, I just watched Twister recently. So, and, and like very recently. So I almost canceled the trip because when I saw that. Um, so, you know, what is a tornado? Actually, I don't know really. I think it's like a, uh, a rotating uh, cylinder of air, right? Something like that. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy when you look up the scientific details of tornadoes. But they don't matter to me that much because I don't live in a place that gets a lot of tornadoes, but they probably matter to you. The thing with philosophy is it's not like that. Philosophy matters to everybody. And, and why is that? Well, philosophy matters to everybody because it's something that we can't escape doing. We all do philosophy. All of us, not just in this room, but everybody. And we all do philosophy because we all have a worldview. We all have a way of thinking about reality. We all have certain commitments in our lives. We have commitments like some things are really good and other things are bad. We have commitments about what is most fundamental, what is most important. We answer certain questions in different ways, questions including God's existence, questions concerning revelation, the possibility of miracles. All these questions are open to philosophical inquiry. And even if we aren't always thinking about them, there's always a sort of implicit philosophy, the way we live our lives. Again, not just everyone in this room, but everyone in general. So my philosophy, if you will, is that since we're all stuck with philosophy, we might as well learn to work with philosophy. And since we can't escape doing philosophy, we should try to do philosophy well. So here's how I would like to proceed. We're going to talk a little bit about the differences between philosophy and science. This is important to get right. Then we're going to talk about how philosophy can help us. What sorts of questions can philosophy answer, especially in today's culture? How can philosophy help us with I call, I call them the icky isms. We're surrounded in a lot of isms. Isms like relativism, skepticism, scientism. We'll talk about what those are and why I think they're icky and how philosophy can help. And then I would like to talk about how philosophy can be an aid to faith as well. What's the relationship between philosophy and religion? So the best way to understand philosophy, I think, is not to start with a definition, but to take a glimpse at some of the questions that philosophers ask. And I hope that many of you will be asking questions later because Q&A is often the most productive and fun part of these types of talks. 
But for now, consider the following questions from the branch of philosophy known as metaphysics. Now, metaphysics is different from metamucil. All right, a lot of people, metaphysics is the study of being. Metamucil is an aid to digestion. So they are, they are distinct entities, right? So here's what metaphysicians ask. Does everything exist in the mind or do some things have existence outside the mind? That's a metaphysical question. Are there different modes of existence? Do things exist in different ways? Do only physical things exist? Does everything that exists change? Or do some things exist in an unchanging way? That's, an, that's a kind of a weird but interesting question, isn't it? Does everything that exists, does it exist necessarily? Like, does it have to exist? Or does it exist contingently? If something exists contingently, we really say it exists, but it, it didn't have to exist. Or it could, could never have come to be, or it could pass away from being, or it could exist in some different way. Does the realm of possible existence, the things that could exist, is that wider than the realm of things that do exist, right? Are there some things that could exist that don't exist? Or does everything that could exist actually exist? These are questions that no scientist can answer, at least not in their role as scientists, because these questions are questions that no science can answer, but they're deep and important questions. If you find those questions interesting, if you've ever asked those questions, you're asking philosophical questions. Conceptually, all these questions are either pre- or extra-scientific. If the scientist has an opinion about them, that is a philosophical opinion, which is fine. Everybody is entitled to a philosophical opinion, just so long as we know that's what it is, and hopefully it's supported by philosophical argument. So that's metaphysics. There's also ethics. Ethics is a study of the good life. So ethical questions are like these. What is the difference between right and wrong? Are right and wrong the same thing as good and bad? How would you answer that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Are right and wrong the same thing as good and bad? What is the nature of evil? Is it possible to pursue evil for evil's sake? Can anybody just do evil just for the sake of doing evil? Are things good because we choose them or do we choose them because they're good? Where do moral obligations come from? Do we have moral obligations? If we do have more obligations, what grounds them, right? Uh, if we don't have more obligations, why do we think we have more obligations? Are there any objective, that means universally binding, culturally independent moral laws? That's an ethical question. Are there circumstances where goods conflict? If so, how do you resolve the conflict? Can that conflict be resolved? Can there ever be such a thing as a just war? Was bombing Nagasaki wrong? Is it okay to marry a chicken? Can you even marry a chicken? The latter is not as much an ethical question, but the former might be, right? Some of these questions are basic. Some of these questions are weird. A lot of philosophical questions are weird. In fact, one of the best definitions of philosophy that I ever heard came from a philosopher that inspired me very much. His name was Mortimer Adler. And he said that philosophy is just really returning to all those questions that you asked when you were a child when you were so full of wonder before your dad told you to stop being so annoying. And then you gave up answering those questions. Adler says, a philosopher is just somebody who, who goes back and realizes that those were the best questions that you could ask and then tries to take them seriously as an adult. That's what a philosopher does. And a good parent should encourage those questions in children. And look, I, I have probably never been stumped more than I have from my children. But I've always tried to make it a point when they stump me to say, that is a great question. I have no idea what the answer is, 
but I'm going to go pick up some books and see if I can find out, right? Let me get back to you on that. I think I got the question, like, why are there lions? Why lions? And I, I think I gave, you know, like an, some sort of evolutionary answer, but it was clear to my child that it was only a partial answer. Like, that was, that was not an adequate response. Like, why are there lions? What is the meaning of lions? It's a tough, it's a tough question, right? It's like so simple, but it's so tough. That's a philosophical question. Uh, of course, not all questions are philosophical questions, right? Uh, what happens when I mix uh, chemical X with chemical Y is a scientific question. That should be answered in a controlled environment. What separates, this is important, what separates the philosopher from the scientist is special knowledge and often special equipment. The scientist answers questions by engaging in technical research and using specific forms of experimentation, which frequently requires training and technology that is not available to everybody. That's why most of us aren't just doing science all the time, right? Philosophers, on the other hand, we think about the data of common experience that is available to everyone always. All the questions that I just listed are questions that we can try to answer from common experience. We don't need any special equipment or te technology to answer those questions. In fact, there is no special technology required for the philosopher to do their work, cushy armchairs aside, because the only work for the philosopher to do is to think hard about the puzzles that arise from ordinary life. There's nothing more to philosophy. Philosophers don't run experiments, scientists do. Occasionally, philosophers may look through telescopes, but having a telescope is not required for doing philosophy. This is not to say, however, that philosophers work apart from experience. This is important. It's just that philosophers work from the most general and, in fact, undeniable experiences. For example, that something exists, that change occurs, that some things are caused. These are experiences that are available to everything, everybody at all times and undeniable. And it is the philosopher's job to shine the light of reason upon these experiences, to try and make them intelligible. Philosophers latch on to and analyze experiences of the world that are so broad that they cannot even be coherently called into question. And in that sense, they're conceptually pre-scientific, right? What I'm going to be arguing later is that science really presupposes a bunch of philosophy, even if scientists don't realize it. And that actually creates a problem in science when you come in with a, a bunch of philosophical assumptions that have not been properly examined. So philosophers work with broad experiences, the denial of which would make science itself impossible, right? So science actually needs philosophy in a very deep and important way. We'll give some examples of that as we move forward. So there is, for example, no equipment available or even conceivable that could answer the question, what is the difference between existence and non-existence? Just think about that, right? What, could a, what sort of scientific experiment could ever yield an answer to that question? Nothing. The only thing you can do with that question is think really hard about it. Really hard about it. On the other hand, there is special equipment to answer the question of what the physical differences are, say in size, between an amoeba and a paramecium. That is a scientific question. So it is, of course, um, maybe we could put it this way. The nature, this is somewhat trivial, but the nature of philosophy is just to try and answer philosophical questions. Uh, so in that sense, it's different from science. Unfortunately, mistakes are often made by philosophers who do try to answer questions that are actually in the domain of science. However, more often these days, it seems like scientists are now trying to answer questions that properly belong in the domain of philosophy, or even worse, theology, right? So when Neil deGrasse Tyson, who knows who, knows who Neil deGrasse Tyson is? Very uh, 
very well-known science popularizer, astrophysicist, right? Uh, I, I want to I say he's constantly committing this foul, right? So when Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist, well-credentialed, nobody, nobody questions him there, when he's asked about God, he says he's skeptical of God's existence because of the problem of evil. He thinks that there's some sort of incompatibility between God and suffering. And he's, but he's answering it in an interview from the perspective of a scientist. And he fails to admit that that is not a scientific question. That is a philosophical question. That is a philosophical question. So it has nothing to do whatsoever with his credentials in astrophysics. And that's a shame because people take his response or his suggestion uh, or even his formulation of the problem of evil as having more force than it does just because he's a scientist. And they fail to realize that he's not answering a scientific question. Right? He's answering a question as a philosopher, however competent, which I would say is not very much in which case his opinion is only as good as the philosophical argument he uses to support it. So you have a lot of science popularizers these days that answer very deep philosophical questions and theological questions that are, which is fine. You know, everybody, philosophy is everybody's business. That's going to be a point that I'm impressing, that I hope to impress here today. So I'm not saying the scientists cannot do philosophy or should not do philosophy. They should, and they're going to, like everybody else. Right? But they should have it clear in their mind when they've shifted to the domain of philosophy and outside of the scientific enterprise. Now, to be fair, it is not just scientists who make this mistake, that is confusing philosophical and scientific questions, but even some of the greatest philosophers throughout the ages have made this mistake. So, for example, when Aristotle thought about the nature of causation, which he did, he was asking a properly philosophical question. But when he speculated on the heavenly spheres and the celestial bodies, he ventured beyond the realm of philosophy and into questions that ought to have been left to scientific investigation, questions which were, in fact, better answered by later astronomers who had the equipment available to take a look. Right? Now, this is, why is that important? Well, it's important because if we don't clearly delineate questions that are properly philosophic from properly scientific, we might throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to thinkers like Aristotle or even St. Thomas Aquinas, because they did get certain scientific questions wrong. They did. But just because they got those scientific questions wrong didn't mean, or doesn't mean, that they got their theological questions wrong or even their philosophical questions wrong. So that's why these distinctions are really important. Uh, moving on then, so it, all science presupposes causation and can only hope to describe in mathematical terms the causal relationships between entities it is the philosopher's business to work out what causation and change and all these other experiences fundamentally are. When one encounters a truly philosophical question, there's only one way of solving it, and that's thinking about it. That's it. That's all we can do. When it comes to doing philosophy, as Mortimer Adler reminds us, and I'm quoting him here, there are no special kinds of phenomena that you can observe, no documents that you can seek out and read in order to find out what change is or why change or causation or anything uh, happens. All you can do is reflect upon the question. There is nothing to do but think. These distinctions may seem tedious, but I hope you find them useful because I'm arguing that philosophy is everybody's business. It's not just the specialists. This cannot be repeated enough. The philosophy is everybody's business. We're stuck with it. We cannot avoid philosophy. Even if your philosophy, if, I've heard somebody say one time, my philosophy, dude, is I have no philosophy. Dude, that's a philosophy. <laughs> We're stuck with it, right? We should try to do it well. Moving on to some definitions now. 
Philosophy traditionally understood as love of wisdom, right? We, we also said it's thinking hard about things. But a more precise definition, one that I like, is provided by uh, a philosopher and, and Jesuit that I admire greatly, um, now deceased, Father Norris Clark. And he says this, philosophy is the critically reflective, systematically articulated attempt to illumine our human experience in depth and set it in a vision of the whole. That's, that's, a, that's a big sentence. Thus, it is not primarily a search for new experience or new facts. That's not what philosophy is about. Although some may turn up along the way, no doubt. But a second level enterprise where we take the experience, including the vicarious experiences of others, and the data we already have when we try to illumine them. We try to make sense of it. We try to search out the ultimate grounding, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate intelligibility with not just that experience, but that experience's connection with the rest of reality. So this means philosophy is a large tree with many branches, right? There's many branches of philosophy. And, the, and these branches arise because philosophy is trying to make sense of all of reality, which has many parts, right? So here are just some of the branches of philosophy to help you um, be familiar with some of the, some of the, the terms. Don't worry about too much about the terms. It's, it's what the terms stand for that matters. So we have metaphysics. We talk about that. That's a study of being. We went through some metaphysical questions, right? What is the difference between existence and non-existence? That's a metaphysical question. Then we have a branch of philosophy known as epistemology. That's the study of knowledge. What, what are the conditions for knowledge? What is knowledge, first off? And then what are the conditions for knowledge? How does knowledge differ from certainty? Does it differ from certainty? How does knowledge differ from mere opinion? Those are epistemological questions. How do we know what we know? Do I have to know that I know something to know something? Do I have to know how I know something to know something? Those are epistemological questions. Think about that, right? Do you, just think about that for a minute. I'm not gonna answer it. Do you think that you have to know that you know something to know something? Or do you think that you have to know how you know something to know something? Yeah, I see the eyes kind of rolling, right? Yeah, that's, these are, this is what philosophy will do to you. Those are questions of epistemology. Now, they might not seem immediately important, but I can tell you they are. They are very important questions. And you might not see the connections right away, but as we, as we move through the talk, I think those connections will become clear. Ethics is the study of the good life. We talked about that. Is there such thing a good life, right? So you have sort of like meta-level ethics. Is there, does it even make sense to talk about anything being good, bad, right, or wrong to begin with? Then we can get down to applied ethics. Okay, what does that look like in practice for us? Stuff like that. That's, that's ethics. Then you have philosophical anthropology. It's a philosophical study of the human person. What does it mean to be a human person? Are we, are we really just, as some people think, just slightly different than the lower animals, different in degree, say? Uh, or are we fundamentally different in kind, right? Is there something like really qualitatively different uh, about human beings than, say, chimpanzees or something like that, right? Do we have an immortal soul? That is a question for philosophical anthropology, not even an immortal soul. Do we have a soul at all? Aristotle, for example, thought anything living had a soul, but he didn't think they all had immortal souls. So those are, those are questions of philosophical anthropology. And it's debatable whether Aristotle even thought we had a human, uh, an immortal soul. Aquinas thought we had an immortal soul, and he thought you could demonstrate that through philosophy. Uh, now, there's also a branch of philosophy that studies the structure of thought, and that is called logic. All of us think logically already, though some of us are more logical than others. Logic is intuitive like music, since most 
people have an inherent sense of music on some level, some inherent sense of melody or rhythm or harmony. Though we recognize some people are more musically inclined than others. Uh, logic is like this. Uh, but when we think about music, right, we also have, so we have this in, in, in inherent sense of music to some degree. But we also think that we should study music theory, which tries to make the structure of music explicit. And the thought is by studying music theory, we can actually become better musicians if we're really into music. Logic is like that. We all ride the rails of logic every day. It's all operating. It's all implicit. Uh, but the problem is sometimes we can go off the rails without noticing it. Right? Sometimes we can make poor inferences. We can reason poorly. We can, we can commit fallacies. We can make mistakes in reasoning. So the thought is if we study the actual structure of thought, the rules of right reason, well, then we can become better thinkers. And that's important to us, right? So that's one way that philosophy is important to us. We think that truth is valuable. That's, that's a philo Why is truth valuable, right? Mostly, almost everybody agrees that truth is valuable. I've met a few people who disagree with that. And we think it's better if we attain more truth. Well, if we study logic, that's kind of what it's helping us to do. Logic is the attempt to discern valid from invalid patterns of thinking and to discover what the common mistakes are. Logic helps us to avoid errors in thinking, and everybody is helped by avoiding errors in thinking, right? Not just philosophers, business people, scientists, parents, everybody. So you can only stand to benefit from a study of logic. I have some examples of logical fallacies and stuff like that, but we can, we can come back to that uh, later in the Q&A if anyone wants to talk more about logic. Because logic is just one branch of philosophy, but it is an important branch. I mean, when I first discovered the study of logic, I could hardly wait to begin picking out other people's fallacies. <laughs> Imagine the power that gives you, right? Over time, however, I did uh, humble myself a little bit and realized that logic was more important for picking out my own fallacies, right? To help myself better arrive at truth and avoid error. For this reason, even a little study of logic can go a long way in helping us to tidy up our thinking, right? So moving on then, let's examine a little bit more deeply some of the other branches of philosophy and how they can specifically help us. Let's turn back to epistemology now, which is the theory of knowledge or the study of, study of knowledge. So namely, trying to discern what knowledge is. That's what epistemology is about and what conditions must be in place for knowledge to occur, right? How, how do we know when we know something? That's what, that's what epistemologists are up to, right? If somebody says they're an epistemologist, that's what they're up to, right? Be like, dude, I know what you're up to. I can say that to them now. Now, some people, say radical skeptics, and we live in a very skeptical culture these days, uh, say we cannot know anything. And has anybody here ever met like that hardcore of a skeptic? Just raise your hand. Somebody says like, we can't know anything, right? Sometimes you hear this with slogans, like there's your truth and there's my truth, but there's no like truthy truth, right? Nobody's got the truthy truth, right? Uh, so they say we can't know anything because there's nothing really to know or we're just not capable of attaining knowledge. So one cool thing about philosophy is it can show us that that's false, why skepticism is false. So take this, for example, right? First, to even deny that we can know anything, for that assertion to be meaningful, which a skeptic assumes that it is, implies that we at least know the meanings of the terms being used, right? Otherwise, it's just babble. But it's not babble, and it's not babble to them. Right? So they're already operating under the assumption, in fact, not just the assumption, but the actual fact that we do know things. That's what philosophers, they, they, they pick out those subtleties, right? So it's undeniable that we can know at least some things. Perhaps then what the skeptical person is trying to say is that philosophy can't prove anything, right? So maybe that's what they're saying. We'll try and be charitable. So maybe they say, no, 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 man, I didn't mean that. I just meant that you and your philosophy 
It's useless. You can't prove anything. Philosophy is not a, legit, a legitimate source of knowledge. So maybe we'll try and take, take that approach. However, philosophy can prove things, <laughs> right? Philosophy can uh, uh, prove, uh, here's, something, here's a kind of clever way that philosophy can, can prove something. Um, so for example, take the claim that philosophy cannot prove anything, right? Take that claim. Philosophy cannot prove anything. If that's true, then that claim cannot be proven, right? If that's true, then that claim cannot be proven. But if the claim that philosophy cannot prove anything is false, then that claim cannot be proven as true, right? If it's false, then it cannot be proven as true, right? However, it has to be one of those two. Logic demands it has to be one of the other, not neither, not both, right? So from there, we can point out that it has just been proven that the claim philosophy cannot prove anything cannot be proven, in which case philosophy can prove at least one thing, namely that the claim philosophy cannot prove anything cannot be proven, which is equivalent to proving that philosophy can prove things. All right? That's kind of like a clever little trick that you can pull on people if they, if they take that radical, skeptical approach, right? Now, of course, uh, that's, that, that doesn't prove that philosophy can prove a lot of things, but it does shut the door on radical skepticism. And then if, it can, if we can prove at least one thing, maybe we can prove more. Why not try? And if we can't prove things, that's not a big deal. Maybe we can just establish things with a reasonable degree of certitude or something like that. And that's pretty good. That's pretty cool too, right? Um, so yeah, philosophy can definitely prove things. So I'm not too worried about radical skepticism. Again, it doesn't tell us that philosophy can prove any much else or many things, but it can certainly give us certain knowledge and it can uh, eliminate skepticism. So we're just scratching the surface here, but that's kind of a cool uh, introduction, I think, to epistemology. And why is that a cool introduction? Because it proves that we can know things, and that's not insignificant. It proves that we are beings that can really know things about the world. That's not insignificant. Uh, I, I think that's a really cool thing to know, and that, that actually inspires me to want to see how much can I know about the world. Uh, I'm not saying, however, that everything is known with certainty either. We want to be careful there. Hence why our friend Mortimer Adler again said we should distinguish between those undeniable self-evident truths and knowledge as reasonable affirmation based on the best available evidence and argumentation on the one hand and mere opinion on the other hand. So knowledge is actually something that most philosophers, epistemologists would say it comes in degrees. It comes in degrees, right? So when we're using uh, knowledge in the common sense, it's really in that middle category for us. It's not like some incorrigible and immutable self-evident first principle that it's impossible to think about its contradiction or denial, but something we could be wrong about, right? Something because the f future experience could introduce some new data point where we could encounter some, some new argument or reason we haven't considered before. Uh, so, so, so knowledge is compatible um, with uncertainty. I think that's important to, to understand as well. But that's, 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 so that's one of the isms that our culture is dealing with today, skepticism. And I think philosophy proves at least the radical forms of skepticism false. We can know things and we can know things through philosophy. That's, that's two things that philosophy can prove. And I think that's pretty cool. So I think that, that, that removes the, the, the major threat of skepticism. Um, but philosophy can neutralize other isms as well. Other, I think, threatening isms. And I say they're threatening because I think they're threatening to our flourishing as human beings. Uh, because I, I actually, I, I do believe that we flourish by coming to know the truth about things and ultimately the truth about God. I mean, that really is ultimately the, the, the Catholic idea of heaven is a deep, intimate union with truth itself, 
right? So I, I see as threatening anything that tries to shut down our pursuit of truth. Skepticism is one of those things. Relativism is another, right? So it, it's, it's kind of a cousin of skepticism, right? So maybe they're not going to say, okay, well, it's not sort of our knowing anything. Maybe somebody will say that no, no judgment, none of your judgments are objectively true, right? There are no objective truth. This is, this is actually more the your truth, my truth thing, right? So, yeah, imagine someone, and we've all probably met more relativists today or these days, right? Um, so imagine someone utter, utters, uh, no judgment is objectively true. Uh, that is relativism in its strongest form. It's the claim that nothing is true independent of how we think about it. So relativists aren't like quite exactly the same as the radical skeptics because they say that there may be true things, but it's just sort of what we think. It's really hard to make sense of relativism, but um, that's the strongest form of relativism is that, that nothing is true independent of how we think about things, right? Thus, while you may have your truth, I may have my truth, there's no like binding truth beyond our minds. No truthy truth, as I call it, actual truth. But I think philosophy can help us here too. Philosophy reveals that the relativist is contradicting themselves as much as the skeptic. For if what the relativist says is true, then at least one judgment is objectively true, in which case what the relativist said is false, right? So if somebody says to you, look, there's no objective truth, so you have every right to ask them, is that statement objectively true? Meaning, is that binding for all of us? And if it is, then relativism is false. And if it's not, then you don't need to continue that conversation any longer, right? Who cares? <laughs> that's philosophy at work. I think that's philosophy doing good work. Either way, what the relativist said is false, and we, we can really know that. We can really know it as objectively true. Now, there's other, I want to be fair, there's other forms of relativism. Relativism comes in degrees. That's like the strongest form. Uh, I think a, a more subtle form of relativism, we can talk about this later if anybody's interested when we do Q&A, is just uh, uh, moral relativism. Uh, so in philosophy, you often have positions that are very kind of like global, and then you have more restricted positions. Global relativism was that strong form that I just put out, right? They just want to say there's nothing is objectively true. But you have like more restricted forms of relativism, and that's where they say, okay, maybe there's, you know, there's mathematical truths, but there's no moral truths, right? Whenever you say um, that something is right or wrong, there's no objective fact of that matter. Right? That would be a moral relativist. And I think there's good ways to respond to that as well, but we can do that in the Q&A if anybody's interested. Um, but I think another thing we should say about philosophy is that it's really just common sense reaffirmed. I'm a very much uh, a common sense philosopher. I think we should take what seems to be the case as generally what is the case unless we have reason to abandon it. If I believe it is true... For example, that Christine, my wife, is sitting and somebody else believes it is true that Christine is standing and assuming we are thinking of the same person, my wife, at the same time now, then one of us is correct and the other person is wrong, right? There's clearly something independent of my thinking that makes that statement either true or false. Philosophers talk about truth makers. My wife is the truth maker. How do you like that title, dear? She's the truth maker of that. Her, her sitting is a truth maker. Of, of my judgment that Christine is sitting, right? And that's a true judgment, because she is sitting. You can look. It's probably, you can look. <laughs> the person is, who is correct is whoever holds the belief that conforms to that state, right? So we're trying to circle around what is truth. So if my wife is actually sitting, then my belief is true. If she is actually standing, then somebody else's belief, uh, then somebody else's belief is true, right? What is true, ultimately, is what is conform, is what conforms to reality. Right? So that's what the relativist is trying to deny, that, uh, that there are any such truths. 
But the philo I think the right philosophical conception of truth is the common sense conception, that when you tell truth, you're just telling it like it is. That's it. So when you say something true, you're saying it like it is. When you believe something true, you're believing it like it is. That's all truth is, right? It's conformity to the way the world actually is, right? And we can, we can be right about that, and we can be wrong about that. The final ism, I think, which threatens philosophy is scientism. Now, this is important. Scientism is not science. Ironically, scientism is an epistemology. It's actually a philosophy. It's an epistemological theory that says science and science alone is the only way we can know anything about reality. Right? So it's really important to get this clear because scientism is not science. These are, these are distinct notions. These are distinct ideas. Scientism is a philosophy. Unfortunately, uh, on the popular level, people seem to conflate the two. They think if you attack scientism, you're attacking science, and that's, that's not true. Um, scientism is a philosophy. So a, a tool that you can use in philosophy is this. I think this is a good test to put to almost any assertion or any claim. Does that assertion, assertion is that assertion consistent with itself? Right? Does it cause itself to kind of like fly off a cliff or to, to use another cliche? Does it saw off the own branch that it's sitting on? Does it saw off the very branch that it's sitting on? So like relativism, I think scientism suffers from this, this problem of self-referential incoherence. It's, it sort of defeats itself. So notoriously, just take the claim again, only science can give us knowledge, right? That's a claim. Only science can give us knowledge is a claim to knowledge that science cannot give us. Do we see that? Only science can give us knowledge is a claim to knowledge that science cannot give us. There is no scientific test that could ever verify or falsify that claim. That is not a claim that science can give us. Thus, if scientism were true, we could not, by the standard of scientism, know that scientism is true. So even if it's true, we could then never know that it's true. So it's useless to even assert it because it's not something we could ever know if it was true. We could only know scientism were true if something aside, aside scientism, like philosophy, could give us that knowledge. But that would be impossible because then we're outside of science, right? So scientism faces a problem here, right? If by science we mean the general hypothetical deductive method of data gathering and theory formation and hypothesis testing, then it's clearly false, right? Scientism is self-defeating or self-refuting. Uh, however, I've seen some people say that scientism isn't just that, that scien scientism is wider than that and includes philosophy. And if somebody says that, well, well, then we don't really have a problem, but now you haven't really said anything interesting, right? Now we don't have a disagreement. So the point is, scientism is trying to say that science is the only way of knowing about the world. And that's just false. And philosophy proves that as false. There are many ways of knowing about the world. Science is one of them. It's an extremely powerful way of knowing about the world. And critiquing scientism is not critiquing science. I want to be very clear about that. Scientism is a bad philosophy and it should be disregarded along with skepticism and relativism and all the rest. But to even go further, there is, there really is no scientific experience, uh, experiment, excuse me, that could ever definitively conclude that only scientific experiments can give us knowledge, especially once we realize that science takes a great many things on as assumption. 
What does science presuppose? This is a good question to ask. By the way, this is why we have philosophy of science, right? This is a, a very legit and well-respected discipline. Science assumes, for example, logic. It assumes mathematics. It assumes the reliability of our cognitive faculties, that we're not just constantly hallucinating, that there is an external world behind, beyond our heads, that our senses are reliable, that there are enduring subjects through change. Science even assumes moral truths when we think about it, right? Scientists assume that to have good science, you shouldn't fabricate data, shouldn't lie about your experiments. These are all things that science requires. Science can't justify those things. That's for philosophy. The cool thing about philosophy is philosophy is the only intellectual discipline that examines the foundations of all other intellectual disciplines, all sciences, and its own foundations. Philosophy is the only discipline that can do that. Examines the assumptions of everything else and its own assumptions, right? So that's scientism. What is the point of all this? Well, the point of all this, however tedious it might be, is just to be encouraging, right? Uh, why philosophy is important, why it matters, and the types of help that philosophy can give us. If nothing else, philosophy helps us to challenge often hidden assumptions. We all hold assumptions, and philosophy is the discipline, again, the only discipline that is capable of examining all assumptions everywhere. It is bedrock. It gets to the bottom of everything, even itself. No other discipline can do that. This is why, of course, again, as I said, that there is, uh, there's, there's so many, has anybody ever tried to take an inventory of the different philosophies out there? There's a ton. There's a philosophy of everything, right? There's like a philosophy of basket weaving, if you look for it, right? Philosophies of music, philosophies of, uh, there's aesthetic philosophies, philosophy of physics, philosophy, any science has a philosophy for it, right? Philosophy of biology, all of it. Uh, and that's because philosophy is that discipline that helps us gain the conceptual clarity that the sciences themselves cannot provide internally. So the point I'm trying to impress again is that philosophy is inevitable, even for those denying the usefulness of philosophy. Without noticing it, skeptics are doing philosophy while arguing against philosophy. Philosophy is being used even in claiming that philosophy is useless. If this is correct, which undoubtedly it is, we should care about philosophy for the same reason we should care about breathing. It's not something that we can escape doing while alive, only doing well. And just as breathing in most circumstances should not be rushed, neither should philosophy be. Philosophy is best done slow, as I've learned as well. Even though people accuse me of being a very fast talker. Somebody called me a Catholic Ben Shapiro. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that was a compliment or not. Um, so I'm trying to be a little bit slower than usual today. If you listen to my podcast, I see yeah, that's the thing. People say they never, they, people who always speed up podcasts never speed up mine for that reason. All right. So uh, before we, I, I want to take questions and turn this into a conversation soon, but I want to say just a few things about philosophy and faith. And this will be a little bit more uh, biographical. Because, um, you know, what we said, I think, I think that, that's all, all right and true. But philosophy for me, I uh, played a, a much more substantial role than just saying, here's why skepticism is false. Now, I, ha I had to work through that because I was a very skeptical person uh, for many, many, many years. So skepticism was actually a philosophical problem that I struggled with for quite some time on a personal level. Um, I, was, I, was, I was baptized and I was brought up in a nominally religious home. So I had no uh, no religious upbringing, no catechesis or whatever. And I was somebody who faced your, you know, pretty cliche at this point, science religion conflict. It was, it was actually around the sixth grade uh, when it first happened. I remember uh, my teacher was sort of outlining the details 
of modern cosmology and Big Bang theory. And I remember just kind of thinking at that point back to like the few classes I had in like second grade Sunday school or whatever of how um, the creation story was told to me and, and thinking that these things didn't seem to match. What's, what's going on here? Um, and again, I was not uh, born into a, a particularly religious family, but that was like the first seed of conflict for me that set me on a path from there on out, right? Where I, I just said, I'm going to be a man of, of science. And I, I disregarded religion uh, pretty early. Uh, I, never, I never adopted a, a strongly anti-religious attitude, as, as many skeptics and atheists do these days. Uh, but I veered in a, in, a, in a strongly skeptical and materialistic way for a long time. So I just want to explore a little bit with you the intersection of faith and philosophy. And like I said, um, I'm somebody who... It's, I sometimes um, hear, I think it's important to bring this up, not all, not all Christians and not all Catholics like philosophy very much. And part of that is there's actually a scripture that's sometimes used against philosophy. Does anyone know what that scripture passage is? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I forget the exact reference, but the only time philosophy is actually mentioned in the New Testament, it's actually in a negative light, right? Uh, and the translation I'm familiar with says, Be, beware of hollow and deceitful philosophies, right? Beware of hollow and deceitful philosophies. Now, some Christians, mostly Protestants I talk with, will say that's the Bible condemning philosophy. And they'll point to kind of people like me in my younger years and say, look what it did to you, <laughs> right? And that's true, it did do that to me. But only bad philosophy did that to me. Only hollow and deceitful philosophy did that to me. So I think we can say, that's right. That scripture passage is right. But there's also philosophy informed by Christ. There's philosophy informed by the Catholic Church. There's good philosophy that can help pull you out of bad philosophy. And that's what happened to me too. That's what happened to me too. I, I just wanted to mention that because I, I have had conversations with people, a lot of Christians who will say, nope, staying away from philosophy, scripture condemns it. And I don't think that's the right reading on that, on that passage. And of course, the Catholic Church is well known for its intellectual giants who were incredible philosophers and theologians. St. Thomas Aquinas was primarily a theologian, but most philosophers would rank him among the top five of all time, usually, at least top 10, right? So I became interested in philosophy personally once it just kind of uh, became obvious to me that philosophy was the discipline that, that um, could answer the questions I cared about most, right? And unfortunately for me, my sort of early introduction to philosophy were through certain writers, H.L. Uh, Mencken, Mark Twain, and they were really into, both of those guys were really into sort of existentialist and nihilistic philosophers at the time. So the real first philosopher that I sort of cut my teeth on in, in high school was Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, he's, he's not very friendly to Christianity. Uh, but the, I was having a, a conversation um, just before the talk uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, you'll have to remind me your name. Yes, and uh, the conversation uh, involved Nietzsche as a sort of frenemy to Christianity. And so in, in a sense, it was this Nietzschean worldview that first brought me into a, a sort of atheism, but then popped me back out again. And what do I mean by that? I mean, Nietzsche rails against religion. He rails against the existence of God. He rails against dogma. 
But the one thing I like about Nietzsche, if you've ever read him, and I'm always on the fence about whether you should actually read him or not. He's difficult to read. He's very difficult to read. He's not clear. He's poetic. He's rhetorical. But the thing I like about Nietzsche, and I, now looking back, is that he's a man that reasons consistently from a false premise. That's what Nietzsche does. He's a man who accepts a false paradigm and he drives it to its logical conclusion, right? People miss that about Nietzsche. People miss that Nietzsche is an absurdist at the end of the day. He says, if you still use grammar, you still believe in God, right? Nietzsche says, there are no objective moral facts. So Nietzsche is sort of my, still, he, he was and still is my favorite atheist because he's a guy that I think gets the world right if the world did not include God. He sees that if the world does not include God, you cannot make sense of meaning, you cannot make sense of morality, you cannot make sense of anything, including science. And Nietzsche was very clear about that. So my, my sort of entire philosophical journey uh, in and out of atheism sort of started and finished with thinkers like Nietzsche, right? And this is where I'm always conflicted because in one sense I, I tell people they don't need to waste their time with Nietzsche, but for people who are actually skeptical like myself, like I was for many, many years, it was actually, it was not encountering Christian philosophers or great Catholic theologians that caused me to reconsider religion. It was just going deeper into the skeptical atheistic worldview, which so few of those philosophers actually do, but Nietzsche did, to the point where I threw my hands up and said, this is, this is too absurd that I can no longer accept it. And it was at that point that I then began to look to other thinkers mostly pagans. Christianity was really not on my mind at the time. I kind of had your cultural biases against Christianity, but I was really interested. And I, you know, I had familiarity with Aristotle and Plato in my undergrad, you know, philosophy classes, stuff like that, but never a deep study of trying to see the world uh, from the perspective of people who weren't so skeptical and actually believed in God. And after a bit of time, I did work my way up to uh, the great Catholic theologian and saint, Thomas Aquinas, and he was the guy who really flipped the switch for me. He was the guy that, that caused me to see you can give robust philosophical arguments for the existence of God, robust arguments for the human soul, for the immateriality of the human intellect. He thinks you could even give arguments for the immortality of the human intellect. And it's funny, I often say that I was, I was a converted Thomist, which is a follower of St. Thomas Aquinas before I was Catholic. But the nice thing about St. Thomas is he, he is fundamentally a theologian, so you can't really spend time with his work without getting a deluge of Christianity along with it. And that made me really interested, of course, in the historical question of Christianity at that point. So this is sort of how philosophy was guiding me to the Catholic faith, right? So the, the story at this point is I get sucked into an atheistic worldview, I get popped back out because it's so fundamentally absurd, I eventually encountered this great intellectual tradition that leads me to St. Thomas Aquinas, who I think is sort of the, sort of the acme of it, right? Uh, I think of St. Thomas as sort of completing the project that Plato started, really, right? That's how I think of St. Thomas. That convinces me that something like the Christian worldview is true, right? And that gets me interested in the historical questions of Christianity. 
which is a question that can be investigated historically, and which I did investigate historically, and was really surprised to learn there's a very strong historical case for Christianity. And the funny thing is, is that your philosophy sort of colors not just how you interpret everything, but the types of things that you look at too. This is why this is another reason philosophy matters and philosophy is important. I never even cared to look at any histor historicity of Christianity when I was an atheist. Because I thought, whatever it is, it's just not going to be interesting to me, right? Why? Because miracles don't happen. If I already have a sort of philosophical backdrop that, to my mind, makes miracles impossible, then I'm just going to hand wave miracle claims, which is exactly what I did. But then, if my philosophy shifts, I believe in God, maybe I, I'm not convinced that any miracles happen, but now they at least seem possible, right? It seems like they could happen. Well, now I'm interested in seeing if there's any evidence that any of them did happen. And long story short, we can go into to this again as we, as we talk later, um, but I found a very strong historical basis for Christianity, which to me actually completed a philosophical project in a way. My, my sort of move to Christianity was very philosophical in as much as I think thinking very deeply about God can give you a very rich conception of God. And Christianity can kind of complete the philosophical story. And this is another important thing to realize about philosophy. Philosophy can only take you so far. There's only so much that philosophy can do for you. I think it can do a lot. St. Thomas Aquinas was really good about this. He said, philosophy can kind of tell you the what of God. If you think really hard about it and you're really smart and really patient, you can argue to God's existence and overcome the objections. Philosophy can tell you the what of God. It cannot tell you the who of God. All right? Philosophy can tell you there's one God, he's purely actual, his essence is subsistent existence, he's the creator of everything else distinct from himself. Philosophy can tell you all those things. Philosophy cannot tell you that God is a trinity. That is a revealed truth. Philosophy cannot tell you that God has this dynamic inner life of love, right? That's compatible with philosophy, but that's something that God had to reveal about himself. Philosophy can tell you the what of God but not the who. But I think philosophy can set you up for things too. I think because philosophy tells you enough about the what of God, including that God is perfectly good, he's perfectly wise. What else do we notice about the world? Uh, well, it seems like it's a bit screwy in a lot of ways. It seems like something has gone wrong. At that point, I think one might have the rational expectation from a philosophical perspective if God is good, perfectly loving, perfectly wise, and something did go wrong that he might try to restore it, right? And then if you look around at the religious options, I would say the one that makes the most philosophical sense is the one with a claim to an incarnation. What is the nature of goodness? What can we know about philosophy about the nature of goodness? That the goodness seeks to communicate itself, that's one thing. Good, good things tend to want to share themselves, but they also want to join with their beloved, right? That's what, that's what goodness is about. That's what love is about. If you have philosophical reasons to think that God is all good, which I think we do and can have, then something like the Incarnation makes a lot of sense. There was philosophical motivation for the Incarnation for me. What I'm trying to say is that philosophy gave me a special reason to look at Christianity over any other religion, right? Because Christianity makes a special claim. Something went wrong in the world. God is good and he loves us. He came down into the world, or really he assumed a human nature to himself, to join us back to himself. That is a beautiful and remarkable claim. And it's really philosophically a word that Aquinas would use, fitting. 
It's fitting. There's a befittingness to that. That if you have your philosophy right, Christianity fits into it extremely well. That even if you don't have the historical arguments for it, it becomes rational to accept it. I like that approach. That was an approach that convinced me. And then, of course, once you have that, you have questions of what did the early church look like, What's questions of authority, and I think that pretty quickly steers you in the direction of the Catholic Church. So that is, uh, let me try and summarize what philosophy is and why does it matter. Philosophy is thinking very hard about things, things that are common to all of us, common experiences. It matters because we have to do it. We have to do it. And if we don't do it, we're going to do it poorly, right? If we don't do it, we will do it poorly. And we'll, we'll still make mistakes even if we try to do it well. That, that is always going to happen, right? And it matters because it can be a great aid to faith. It matters for Catholics. Why? It matters because it is an apologetic aid. We live in a time where people think that faith is fundamentally opposed to reason. Survey after survey after survey in the church asking people, why did you leave? Why did you leave? They say because they think that it's not true. That's the number one reason among young people. They think that it's not true. They think that faith is contradicted by reason. They think that it's contradicted by science. Philosophy can show that that conflict is merely apparent. That there's actually great harmony between faith and reason and faith and science. So it's an apologetic aid. It's an aid for us, not just in our own confidence and our own faith, but also it's an aid to understanding. Uh, for me, philosophy now is as much a spiritual journey as anything else, right? It's hard to love what you can't know, right? It's hard to love what you can't know. I've, in fact, it's impossible to know, to love what you can't know. How can, you, how can you love something if you know nothing about it, right? Philosophy, although it can't tell us everything about God, can tell us a fair amount about God. And for that reason, I think philosophy is an aid to our spiritual quest as well. When we love God, we want to know even more about God, right? When we love something, we just we want to be around it as much as possible, be as close to it as possible, know as much as possible. Philosophy is an aid to apologetics. Philosophy is an aid to faith. Philosophy is an aid to theology as well. If you're a theologian and you're not trained in philosophy, that can cause you to make mistakes, mistakes in thinking. I think one of the biggest problems with modern theology is Theologians are poorly trained in philosophy, so they tend to be very sloppy thinkers. And this is why I think the greatest theologians were also the greatest philosophers, like Aquinas, like Augustine, and them.